come on up. I want to uh, introduce my friend to you. Many of you already know Billy Jean because he's been teaching Sunday school here now for a couple of years and has done multiple classes. He's a dear brother in the Lord, and uh, I had enough foresight to know that after last week's marathon that I would uh, want someone to, to step in and pinch it for me this morning. And so he was very uh, glad to accept this uh, responsibility and uh, joyful in being able to bring God's word to you this morning. And so uh, we are eager to hear from you. I hope the mic is going to work. Can we get a sound check? He's going to do the, uh, the normal pulpit mic. You got to Microphonic turn test. Can y'all hear him? Take it away. Before I begin today, I'd like to share with you that about 10 days ago, uh, I was asked to consider preaching for our church on this particular Sunday morning, and within 10 seconds, there were three distinct emotions that overcame me. The first was humility. Uh, who am I to stand in this pulpit? Why would I be here? There are other men that are equally or better qualified than myself. That was my second, my first thought, my first emotion. My second was exhilaration. What an opportunity to share some things from God's Word with the people that I love and care for. That was my second emotion. My third emotion was utter terror. (laughs) I don't think I need to explain that one at all. Depending on where you're seated, And relative to your age, to your age, at 64, I might be considered an old person and uh, could be your father or even grandfather. Or, depending on where you're seated, and relative to your age, at 64, I might be considered a young person and could be considered your son. I see some heads nodding. Within each of our lives, there has been, there is, and there always will be Seasons of fulfilling joy, deep sorrow, bitter anger, wild and crazy happiness, aching loneliness, broken relationships, comforting friendships, unexpected consequences, and at times, even utter chaos. And that's okay, mainly because when it's all said and done, God will have woven our lives together with his purpose to form a tapestry, an amazing tapestry called life. In other words, we are a compilation of all these experiences and many, many more. So realizing the importance of our individual biographies and the relevance of our individual historical journeys, we begin to identify and understand those historical events which have been the path to where we are today. Acknowledging these thoughts leads me to the conclusion that only a spiritually blind person would not be able to see the importance and relevance of knowing, understanding, discerning, and applying the history of the Old Testament and its potential impact on our lives today. Furthermore, if you and I ever hope to have a complete understanding of the New Testament, it is imperative we have a good foundational understanding of the Old Testament as well. 
I love reading the Old Testament. What's not to love? It's filled with rich stories, amazing history, bloody battles, intrigue, romance, and poetry, not to mention the lives of the prophets, the priests, and the kings. It's a compilation of 39 books that is just as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. So when I hear someone say the Old Testament is no longer relevant, to me it's just like someone saying to me, because I'm an old guy, I'm no longer relevant. Well, my wife would disagree with that. (laughs) She believes I'm relevant, and I hope she does. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, I shared a story about a, a, a man by the name of Zola Levitt. You probably have heard of him. He is a, was a converted uh, Jew, turned to Christianity, and lived the life he lived for Christ, and he taught many, many lessons in the Bible. And one day, one of his students said, enough of hearing about the Jews, can't we just study the Bible? <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you that the Bible is filled with stories about the Jews. Our text today is Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. The Bible says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So there I was, casually reading along in the conversation between God and Moses, and I came on this verse, and it occurred to me, it occurred to me, God put them there in the first place 430 years earlier. They've been there for a long time. So I asked a question, what was he planning? What was he thinking? Why did he wait so long? Do spiritual things ever occur to you? Spiritual things, life in general occurs to me all the time. Uh, things, things occur to me that I have no idea why I never saw that before, but it just occurred to me when I was reading this that they've been there a very long time. One of my favorite radio pastors is Adrian Rogers. He's not with us anymore, but back in the 70s, he had a quote, and it's my favorite quote of all the quotes, and if you've heard me teach before, you know that I've shared this famous quote many, many times, and I I wanted to share it with you, And, and the quote is this, Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? This is one of Adrian Rogers' favorite things to say. And I remember that from the 1970s. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? You know, God didn't say, hey, I better get back down there. Those people have been there a long time. I need to get them out of there. What was they thinking? It's been so long, they're probably overdone. I don't know. It didn't occur to God, you see. It was part of his plan. So here's one of my several conclusions why they were there for so long. You see, it all started with the family of Jacob, whose later name was changed to Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now he had 70 people in his tribe Twelve sons, 70 people. That's about where they were when they first went to the land of Egypt. 
started with this family, and this family had two distinctions, two distinctive characteristics about this particular family of 70. They were all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number two, because of the Abrahamic covenant, all the men had been circumcised. That was the two distinctives that they had. And they were there for 430 years, and they were now a nation of, after that a length of time, two million, two million people. Now, that's a lot. God wanted them to procreate, and procreate they did. In fact, if you divide 2 million by 430, you get approximately 5,000 babies a year. That's a lot of dirty diapers. <laughs> that's a long time. That's longer, 430 years. That's longer than before Columbus discovered America. That's a long time ago. If I think real hard, I can remember my grandfather. I certainly can't remember my great-great-grandfather. My grandfather was born in Texas in 1893, and his pappy was born in 1863 in Texas. And the one before that was a Pony Express rider. That's the only thing I know about him. He was born around 1835. So that's a long time, but that's nowhere near as long as 430 years. Imagine Imagine they had the history they, they had. Now it says in this particular verse, who he's talking to. Say therefore to the sons of Israel. Who are the sons of Israel? Those are the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. Jacob's 12 sons. The oldest was named Reuben. He was the son of Leah. And his youngest was named Benjamin, son of Rachel. Now, God used Moses to speak or to tell them, the Israelites, three things. This is what they're going to need, Moses. There's, this is what they're going to need to know, and this is what I want you to tell them. First of all, I want you to tell them who I am. Secondly, I want you to tell them what I'm going to do. And the third thing I want you to do is tell them who, how I'm going to do it. Now, if I don't get strangled with this thing throughout the service, I'll... You're doing really good. Okay. I think my ears are just bigger than Chris's. That's all I can come up with. First of all, he says, who? Who am I? Who is the one sending you? He says, I am the one. I am the one. I am the one and only. There is no other. Unlike the false gods of the Egyptians, I am the true God. Only I am capable of doing what I'm about to do. This is who I am. This is who I am. And because of who I am, now I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do. Look at what it says in the next part of that verse. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you. In other words, he's about to set them free after 430 years of bondage. He's about to redeem them. And to be my people, you have to be willing to do what I tell you I'm going to want you to do so that I can get you out of there. Not maybe, not hope so, not if I feel like it, not when I get around to it. You can take this to the bank. I am going to get you out of there. I am going to... Redeem you. So get ready. Redemption is a big word, but it has a pretty simple meaning to it. Basically, redemption means deliverance by the payment of a price. Well, deliverance from what? You see, Egypt is a type or a 
sign or whatever of sin. They had been under the bondage of the sinful Egyptians for so long that they had become slaves to that system, that culture. So they'd been under that group of people and that sinfulness for so long. And we know that Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. They were doomed for death. They had absolutely no hope at all. So as a result, God is going to bring them in and take them out and get them out of there. You know, when you read that verse, the wages of sin is death, do you realize that the penalty for death, for sin, is death? There is a penalty that has to be paid to satisfy God. What was the penalty that was paid for the Egyptians to get out of Egypt? The death of the lambs. The death of the lambs. So, as we think about that, we, we discover that God is now going to tell them how he's going to do it. And he says he's going to do it with an outstretched arm. And every time I see this in the Bible, I think something really big is getting ready to happen. And that's what I want to read you some verses from the Bible that kind of de defines what I was talking about there. If you look in Deuteronomy 4.34, it says, Has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Again, in Deuteronomy 5.15, he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. There's that word again, outstretched arm. And then Jeremiah the prophet also says in 27.5, he says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm. That's how he did it with his outstretched arm. And I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Then again in 32 of Jeremiah, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. By your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. And then finally in Ezekiel, I'd like to read uh, chapter 20, verses 33 through 38 quickly. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, there's that word again, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an, there it is, outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. <clears throat> I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So when he says, I am going to stretch out my arm, get ready. Something really big is going to happen. And of course, we all know what happened. There were nine plagues, and then the final plague, it did it. You know, they 
they had these plagues and, and uh, all these uh, bad things were happening to the uh, Egyptians and, and God was trying to demonstrate to them who he was. You know, you ask, well, why did it take 10? Well, uh, hard-hearted. God made them hard-hearted. And he said, I want to do this so I can demonstrate what I'm capable of doing. And, of course, we know the final one was where the firstborn of every family was to die if they weren't under the blood of the Lamb. Now, how many of you in this room today, raise your hand if you are the firstborn in your family? Well, y'all are out of luck. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of us, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. So, well, what did God tell Moses to tell them to do the night before the firstborn was going to be killed if they didn't have the lamb's blood on the doorpost and the lintel above the door. Now, I asked the question, well, why, didn't, why did God use the lamb's blood? Why didn't he use a yellow ribbon, you know, tie a yellow ribbon around your doorpost? Why didn't he say, well, look, just put a candle in the window, or maybe two or three? Maybe you could paint the Star of David on the front door. Oh, wait a minute, that was way before the Star of David, wasn't it? How about, how about, do you think that, do you think that any one of those two million people, 600,000 grown men, would have said, well, you know what, I really don't need to do exactly what he said. I could probably take that chicken out there that I can't stand and cut its head off and put the blood on it with the chicken. Do you think somebody might have done that, thinking that, well, this will be good enough. Now, it's not in the Bible, but I have a stinking idea that somebody must have thought, I'll just do it my way. You know how we are. We want to do things our way. So whether or not that's in there, I don't really know. But that's what they had to do. They had to slaughter the lamb. They had to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel. So... What in the world does this have to do with me today, 3,300 years later? That's a really good question, and I'm about to tell you why. Because of the sacrifice of the blood from the lamb, they were given, they were given, they were, they, because of the sacrifice of the blood from the lamb, they were saved physically. They were physically saved. And because of the sacrifice of the blood from the Lamb of God, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we are saved spiritually. Physically, spiritually. Old Testament, New Testament. They were redeemed. This is foundational to the Christian life. It is at the heart of what we believe. Redemption. Without redemption, we wouldn't be here today. This is at the core of what we believe as Christians. Get a hold of this. Don't let go of it. God has redeemed us, and this is a picture of him redeeming us spiritually. So God parts the sea and the Israelites cross. I mean, there's two million of them, and it's not just them. They've got their dogs and cats and chickens and pigeons and their pet turtles and their goldfish. They've got everything with them. They're, they're getting out of there. So they cross over, and after they get out, the Egyptians are, of course, drowned. One other evidence that it wasn't the Reed Sea, it was really the Reed Sea, because the, the Red Sea is the sea that's higher up and much deeper. It's hard to drown in three feet of water. So that's what happened to the Egyptians, they drowned. So 
What had they just experienced? They had just experienced physical separation from the Egyptians. They had just experienced uh, physical uh, freedom. They were able to witness the miraculous power of the Lord God. They were saved from being forced to go back under physical bondage. You know, God mentions this countless times throughout the Word of God. He continues to bring this up. He says, you remember when I brought you out of the land of Egypt? Have you ever been reading the Bible? There it is again. He keeps, why does he say that? Why does he keep bringing it up? Because it's foundational to the Christian life. It's the hub of what we believe. It's important to see that that's where they were, and that's where they are now. And in your life, in my life, that's where we were spiritually, and now this is where we are spiritually. We're alive. We were dead. Now we're alive. They were dead. Now they're alive physically. So, if we were to interview an Israelite who had actually witnessed this miraculous event and ask him to answer two questions. Who are you and where did you come from? This is what he might say. I was in a foreign land in bondage as a slave with a sentence of death over me, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. My mediator led me out and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land. We're not there yet, but God has given us his love to help make us a community. We live by God's sovereign grace. His presence is in our midst, and he's going to stay with us until we arrive home. Now, who does that sound like? I don't know about you. It sounds just like me. I mean, that's my testimony right there. I was in a foreign land. I was dead. I was in bondage to sin. And God saved me. That's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us spiritually. Okay. So we're all on the same page. Remember, salvation is about being freed from bondage. That's what salvation is. We're freed from the bondage of sin. They were under the penalty of death with no hope. You ever been there? You ever been in a situation where you had no hope at all? It's only when we come to that realization that we have no hope that we can experience the life-changing salvation that God gives us. We have to get to that point of no hope. There is no hope outside of Christ. So here they are. They've got the Egyptians hot on their trail. And they've got the sea behind them. They can't go to the left or right. They can't go backwards. They can't go forward. God has them exactly where he wants them to be. There were other routes they could take. They didn't have to go there, but that's where God wanted them to be. And that's what God does to you and me. He allows us to get to that person where the place in our lives, where the, the sea is on one side and the Egyptians are fast getting to us. And we stand there with no hope. We don't know what to do. Well, you know what? Christ knows what to do. You know what Christ does? He opens the sea up and everybody leaves. Hallelujah. He did that because he wanted them to see his majesty and his glory. They were saved because of what God did for them, not because of anything they had done. That's an important point. We're doing or planning to do. Let me say that again. They were saved because of what God did for them, not because of anything they had done, were doing or planning to do. They got out because God provided a mediator for them. His name is 
Moses. That was their mediator. Our mediator today is not Moses. Our mediator today is not Buddha, it's not Mohammed, it certainly isn't the Pope, and it's not an elder in this church. Our mediator, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, is there is one man, the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. That's our hope. That's our hope. Not these other things, not these other people, or these other, the other things that are out there. Now, objectively, the Israelites were free. Objectively, they were free. You could look at it and say, yeah, they're free. They're not under the bondage of the Egyptian anymore. However, subjectively, subjectively, I don't think they were completely. You can take the Israelite out of bondage, but taking the bondage out of the slave is very difficult. If you were a black person back in the 1800s and you had been a slave for 40 years, in 1865, Congress passed the 13th Amendment, which was the Emancipation Proclamation. So imagine being a slave for all that time, and on paper, you're free. You're suddenly free. You have been free. Objectively, he was free, but he's still going to carry that past with him, that past with him, wherever he goes. It's the same thing for a guy that's been in prison for 40 years. They call him institutionalized. You get out of prison, you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom to do whatever. Now, now I don't speak from experience, but so I'm told. You have to have permission to do everything, and when you get out of that that jail and that prison, and all of a sudden you have to, to live a, a, a free life, yes, you're objectively free, but subjectively you're, you're kind of mentally in that situation where you feel like you're still in prison. And some of the Israelites wanted to go back. Did you know that? He said, we miss all that good stuff we had back then. Now see, they were whining and complaining before, but now... They don't have the leeks and the garlic and all the good food, and they didn't have all that. So they started whining and complaining. We haven't changed a bit. We still whine and complain. We're never happy. We're never satisfied. Well, you know what? This thing about the suggestive, the subjective life and walking with Christ is covered thoroughly in the book of Galatians. Paul does an amazing job explaining, explaining the... Uh, self-righteous life. Many today still want to go back under bondage, the bondage of works righteousness. You ever heard that term before? Works righteousness? I'm going to be so good that I'll be righteous. And they put themselves under under the bondage of righteousness and self-justification. You can't, there is no such thing. You can't be self-justified. The only one that can justify you as the justifier And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's our nature to want to be perfect, or at least try. We want to demonstrate how right we are. You ever accuse someone of something, and immediately we get defensive. Well, that's not me. I didn't do that. Sometimes I'll ask one of our employees, I'll say, uh, did you do, do you know who did it? I didn't do it. I don't know who did it, but I didn't do it. And we get real, we can get real defensive real quick. And that's, our nature to do that. We want to demonstrate how right we are. Ask someone if they're going to heaven. See what they say sometimes. 
and you'll get a plethora of answers. Well, I've been pretty good. I think I'll go to heaven. Or, I sure hope so. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty risky thing to think. I, I hope I go. Look, if you, if you understand the Bible, you will know that you can go. And you will know. When you cross from death into life, you'll know it. All of a sudden, the things that you didn't really care about, you care about. And the things that you used to love to do, it's like, man, I'm, just, I'm not interested in doing that anymore. I love that song. And it's a coincidence, if you believe in coincidences, that we sang the song this morning, Solid Rock. I was going to quote that. I've got that right here. I've got it memorized, but I wrote it down because I didn't want to, you know, I'm human and sometimes I forget. But my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and, uh, see, I did it. Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And that's a fact. Everything else is sinking sand. Now, there are three kinds of bondages. Three kinds of bondages. There is bondage to the law. When you're bound to the law, these are, these are your priorities in life. Do this. Do that. Don't do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't say that, don't sing this, don't act like that. There is a laundry list of yes and no and yes and no and yes and no. I hope you're not living under that kind of a bondage today. Because Luke 18 talks about a man like that when he goes to pray and he's there with a sinner and he says, well, I'm glad I'm not like that other guy because I tithe and I fast twice a week. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. That's the wrong way to go. Bondage to the law will only bring death. There's a second bondage. Bondage to the sin nature. Bondage to the sin nature. I am bound by those old sins and I can't let go. I know it's wrong, but I just keep getting pulled back. You know, we have cravings. Unfortunately, uh, many of us have struggled with some kind of, a, of an addiction and it's hard to let go. It's hard to let go. Take, God take over in our lives. So we struggle with that. And, and sometimes we stay in bondage to the sin nature for a long time and, until we get to the point where we're ready to just totally give it all over to Christ. Then the third kind of bondage is bondage to, bondage to idols. Anything that is more important to you than God is an idol. Now, I'm not saying that, you know... We're not just talking about, you know, going into your kitchen and getting a bunch of gold, if you got any, or whatever, and making you a little statue there and bowing down to it. Now, that's not what we're talking about here. Now, it may have been what they were talking about, but we know otherwise. Anything that is more important than God is an idol. We demonstrate this every single day of our lives. What's important to us? You know, we do what we want to do. You know that, right? We do what we want to do. We always do. We do what we... Do I have to go to the hospital and see my relative? We figure out a way. Well, I'm, I'm feeling kind of... I feel calm. Can't. You don't want me to get anybody sick. See? We do what we want to do. I have a, a very good friend. I've known him for probably... I've known Dave for about 25 years now. One day we were talking about... Uh, 
about things, about cars or, you know, what, what at the time we thought was really important, like this kind of car is the best, or, or this football team was the best. Well, I don't know, we were going along those lines, and Dave is not a spiritual person, he's a Christian, but he's not, I mean, he's not, he hasn't been to seminary, he's, he doesn't really, he doesn't, he's not a deep, deep thinker by any means, but he made a comment one day, and I've never forgotten that. We were sitting there talking about idols and things that, that uh, are seemingly important to us and carry some weight with us. And he made this comment, you know what? Really, the only three things in life that are important are God, your family, and your friends. I think that's pretty good theology. God, your family, and your friends. And that I've always thought that was a, a good way to go, and it's been good for me. And not having to be under the bondage of idols... And realizing that those three things, God, your friends, and your family, these are the important things of life, the eternal things of life. So how did we get out of Egypt, out of bondage? We crossed over by the sovereign grace of God. We crossed from death to life, and it was a one-time event. They didn't have to go back over the river and back out again and back through the river. It was a one-time event. With religion, listen very carefully, with religion, it's a process. To be religious is a process. You move to become religious. Do this. Do that. Go there. Read this. Think that way. And eventually you'll get there by your own efforts. How silly is that? Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. When we can get to that point in our lives where we realize that the only thing that matters is our relationship to Christ. And we have come a long way in our walk with Christ. Moses was the Israelites' mediator Jesus is our mediator. Crossing the Red Sea gave salvation to them physically. Crossing from death to life gives you and me spiritual freedom and life. So what happens now that we've crossed over? Now that we're already here, for those of us who have crossed the Red Sea, who have been saved, who have been transformed by the blood of Christ, what happens to us? Romans 6, 17 and 18. Romans 6, 17 and 18. Paul says, But thanks be to God that through that though you were slaves of sin, notice the word were, past tense, you used to be, not anymore, you were slaves of sin, you were in Egypt, you became obedient from the heart, not an exterior thing, from inside, from the heart, to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. It's true. We still are under bondage. We, we still are slaves. But we're slaves of righteousness, not sin. Our obedience and our compassion is toward our Savior, not towards the Egyptians. We don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that. I know you don't want to go back to that. So does that mean we will never sin again? I wish. I wish I didn't sin. 
Sometimes I can go a whole 20 minutes without... <laughs> okay, I could actually go more than that, maybe 30 minutes, but... We're going to sin. There's no doubt about it. We still live here because I look in the mirror every morning. I see this old man there, and I'm thinking, that's not the man I, I remember. The guy I remember was 19 years old, strong and, and active and athletic. And, and uh, I look in the mirror, and I'm thinking, man, I still am in the flesh. I'm not getting any younger. I woke up one day, and there's this line on my face, and I'm thinking, where did that come from? All of a sudden, I'm... I'm getting people, I'm hearing them say, well, that old man over there, and they're talking about me, and I think, what old old man? I'm 64 years old. Well, you better take it easy, Mr. Smith, because you're getting old. Come on. Because of the sovereign grace of our Lord, we have redemption by the blood of the Lamb. We can now serve God free of the burden of those oppressive sins that dominated our lives. Thank God. Thank you.